0: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the show today. Yeah, I know. Does this guy ever stop talking? You're probably thinking and the answer is, well, no, not really. But, uh, man, I can tell I can tell you, I sure can not fill two hours. Now, here's the key, though. I want to invite you to help me fill that time as well. 801-331-8113 is my number. So, uh, watching some of the goings-on in Portland, I don't know if you saw this there's almost a media blackout, at least from most of the mainstream media sources. But the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, was uh, was there addressing the masses, monitoring the situation there at the federal courthouse. Um, I guess they call it the federal justice complex there in Portland. And he's standing outside the fence, watching as these, I'm, I'm putting this in air quotes, protesters literally are trying to set the courthouse on fire. And by the way, they booed the mayor. Didn't matter what he had to say. As much as he tried to pander to them, as much as he tried to take a knee and assure them, I'm with you. I'm one of you. You know, no. Dude, the crowd wants blood. Your blood is as good as any, maybe a little bluer than some, but uh, hey, it'll work. They're thirsty for the stuff. And so they booed him. They finally, actually, he, he ended up having to, uh, to flee for safety And his security team, you know, had to push people back. They were trying to attack the mayor, the guy who ostensibly is on their side. But here's the thing. He's watching them throwing things at these federal law enforcement officers and trying to set fire to the buildings. And just, you know, the the place is under siege. And what does uh, what does Ted Wheeler say? He says, I see nothing in the actions of these uh, protesters that would warrant this kind of a response when the tear gas came out. Now, I don't want you to think that I've lost my mind because I'm not going to come down on the side of, yeah, you know, more militarized enforcement would be exactly what we need. I see a lot of friends on Facebook who are chomping at the bit. And I think it's because their, their, their hatred of Antifa and their hatred of those those protesters is stronger than their love of liberty and it's stronger than the realization that if you take that dog off the leash and you tell the feds, hey, go after these rioters with everything you got. If they think it won't ever be turned against us, they're they're sadly mistaken. So I'm not suggesting either that, you know, the, the feds should roll over there. But I do have to wonder, and someone actually asked me this last night what is the what is the proper you know flow in terms of power at which point the federal government can come in can the state ask the feds would you come in and and help protect our city when the mayor among others is clearly not willing to do so i don't know the answer i believe it's something that's supposed to be solved at the lowest possible level first To me, that would mean the National Guard possibly being activated by the governor and and being used to restore order. Didn't we see that happen in California back in 92, following the Rodney King riots? I don't for a minute have any sympathy for the, the actual rioters. Now, people who are protesting brutality in law enforcement, I can see some common ground with them. But when they cross the line to where they are destroying innocent people's property or attacking innocent people, or for that matter, just when they are introducing violence into a situation that uh, that did not require it in the first place, and then playing the victim when more violence is visited back on their heads. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a really smart thing to do. So I hate to start on such a negative note today, but I I think we, we need to understand more laws mean more police brutality. If you want to see the police, uh, the level of police brutality in this country dialed back, the level of militarization of our police dialed back, the very first thing that has to happen is there have to be less laws that the police are required to enforce. I'll come back to this in a few moments. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to the show.
2: Yes, Brian. Well, we both know that Multnomah County Jail and the federal courthouse there should be gone. It would be no no harm done for the sake of humanity.
0: I know we both have friends who who suffered unjustly in those places. So yeah, it's it's not like oh well if only they could uphold the rule of law. I don't think the rule of law was what kept Ryan Bundy and others you know behind bars there uh, you know for so long.
2: No, let the wicked punish the wicked, but the. Is in the Constitution, the governor or the application of the state legislature is necessary. There was no, Robert E. Lee was no way, no how going to let federal troops cross into Virginia. If the governor or the state legislature does not ask for help, stay out, D.C., stay out. Now, Joseph Smith had some legitimate grievances, but... I'm not sure that Van Buren's answer wasn't correct. I cannot help you. The legislature doesn't care about the Latter-day Saints, and the governor doesn't care about the Latter-day Saints. You're on your own. So uh, get the Legion together and, and handle your business.
0: Interesting take.
2: Well, it's, I mean, I was reading that the other day. Yeah, unless the governor and the state legislature asked for help from the District of Columbia, you got to stay out. But anyway, that document, who reads it all? We get what we know we get from social media in about five seconds. The media tells us what to think, how to feel, how to... uh, Yeah, get rid of defund the police. You know what? That would be super. And then we could all start acting like men again. It's called the posse comitatus.
0: Okay, Jared, thanks for weighing in. You bet. 801-331-8113. I want to temper what's being said here, at least at least my comments with the understanding I have friends who are in law enforcement and, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to defend everything that law enforcement does. The reason that they are my friends is because they are the kind of police officers who are, f- are first and foremost peace officers. And maybe it wouldn't surprise you if I tell you that uh, they're appalled by some of the things that they see happening as well. And I know that the, there are those who will say, well, then if they are appalled by that, they should quit they weren't drafted they have a choice it's true at the same time i believe that uh, they can be a positive influence in the sense that they are applying friction against that uh, that wheel that is grinding us beneath it and that uh, that tends to serve only the interest of the state which is is kind of what's happening to our justice system let's talk for a moment about more laws mean more police brutality. This is from Justin Murray writing for the Mises organization. He says, one of the most perplexing displays of cognitive dissonance this year is the strong support for a large state that can be found within the various protest movements that are targeting the issue of law enforcement misconduct. Logically groups opposing police misconduct should also be strong supporters of the libertarian ideology. However, this does not appear to be the case. He says this movement, oddly enough, has quite a bit of overlap with support for gun control, the welfare state, and more regulation. The central organization, Black Lives Matters, is a fully Marxist entity. Socialism, Marxism, communism, and other ideologies revolve around the strong or total domination of the state in everyday life. And he says the state, as defined by Murray Rothbard in Anatomy of the State, is an organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly by the, of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. The way the state maintains authority within its jurisdiction is with the application of laws. Now, we're going to have to pause here for a few moments because we've got to take a break. But when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about what the nature of a law is. You and I have been brought up to believe, well, the law is what protects us. The law is what makes us do the right thing for the right reasons. And I I mean, we're we're told to look at it very respectfully, right? I mean, all all of that uh, pomp and circumstance that you experience in court is is probably, you know, there for a reason, right? Because the law really matters. The strange disconnect that unfortunately I I feel a lot of people just, just can't quite reconcile in their minds is the possibility that some laws are bad laws, or they have a negative effect. Now, we could get into, an, into a discussion here of negative law versus positive law. The best explanation I know for that is positive law forces you to do something. It increases your obligations to government. Negative law limits government's power over you. You can probably guess which one I would be more of a fan of. So when we come back we'll continue with uh, with this article on mises.org from Justin Murray, more laws mean more police brutality. If you want to curb police brutality, the first place you have to start is you have to limit government power. And you start by limiting laws to only those things that are essential. We'll be back in just a few moments.
1: the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde
0: show hey welcome back so we're talking about how more laws mean more police brutality i'm surprised more people don't make this connection but uh, Justin Murray does a marvelous job of describing this in an article that he wrote for the Mises Institute. I will have this posted with the show notes, which you can find at com. One of the things he talks about in here is the nature of a law. And this may seem really rudimentary, but I think it's, it's worth touching on in that a law is defined as, quote, a rule of conduct or action prescribed or formally recognized as binding or enforced by a controlling authority. End quote. In other words, it's a set of rules that either obligate or forbid action with a penalty for failure to comply. And while it may sound good to have a set of rules that individuals must adhere to and penalties to incentivize compliance, the nature of those penalties is where we run into issues. While laws may have formally designated penalties for non compliance, those penalties can at best be viewed as a minimum sentence. The maximum penalty for failure to comply with any given law is the execution of the perpetrator. Now he says, well, that may sound like hyperbole. It's important to understand why this is the case and how, uh, how why that's the case and how law enforcement must resort to it. We'll come back to that in just a moment. I've got Sam on the line with me from Missouri. Sam, how are you?
3: I'm doing wonderful considering everything. And um, it's interesting you're covering this topic because I just talked to one of the ladies. You own a small town, you know, we get to know... You know, people, including our bankers and different people, you know, small community-type area. And one of the ladies that waits on us up there, she had a lot of time to sit and talk to us because with the uh, COVID scare still going on, banking is only done by appointment up there. And so when we got done, we got to talking, and and she was trying to make sense of all this rioting and stuff. And I told her about this whole thing. I said, don't fall for this federal response. I said... Here's the problem with it. And this is the thing. Here's the way I explained it. And it goes right along very similar. I said, The problem with it is, I said, You can bet as it is, we're going to have a, a bad time if things change and the Democrats get in office. I mean, they've openly boasted, you know, who they want to go after, who they, you know, which they're already doing effectively a good job of that. But remember, the same force, if we send federal troops in there, Uh, We know how it's going to go if the other side wins particularly and could very well go anyway. I mean, you know, the the problem is, I mean, look at the situation, um, what the other side did when uh, you had the Obama administration that was in charge during the time the Bundys were trying to defend their situation. And I think that's kind of a clue as to uh, where we could potentially go anyhow. But it would be further exacerbated by the situation with the Fed's and the, and the conservatives getting behind the feds going in there and um, and and claiming to rescue, every you know, the cities from all this stuff. Because the problem with it is, you know, it doesn't matter who's in office. There's that old saying that uh, when, you, when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail, so you just oh, yeah. go after everybody, you know. And that's what I um, – I've been looking at a lot of the stories from the uh, Free Thought Project and – which seem to have a pretty good handle on some of this stuff, and the problem is, it sounds to me like what I'm gathering here is in in some of these towns they're just snatching people up off the street, even if they're just bystanders, whether they were involved in the in the riots or not, or even if they're just out traveling through the area, you know. And the problem is, is that um, you know there's going to be a lot of innocent people um, caught up in all of this stuff. It's just like the same thing going on now with the blacks versus the whites. You know, you got. There's a lot of white people stirring up this, for all intents and purposes, this Black Lives Matter movement. And all it's going to do is just like out here, uh, out here, we do have a certain amount of people out here who are racist. I mean, I've run into them. There are not very many, but there are some out here. When they see all this stuff on TV, all they see is the riots and stuff going on. And right away, all that does is just that further bolsters their uh, racist argument, you know. And the problem is when this happens, a lot of innocent people get caught up in all of this. And I, I keep reminding people, you cannot stereotype everybody, you know. Yep. Um, I'm a blind person. Are all blind people the same? No. Okay? Um, all of us have different interests, different desires, different tastes, uh, different ways of dealing with things in life. We're all different. But, see, that's the problem with a secular society is that, um, and particularly when you get into groupthink, everything is grouped, you know. Well, the blind they must all act alike because they're a group. well, the blacks they all act alike because they they're a group you know groupthink has never worked and it's high time that we get out of that groupthink mentality here, But here. this is what this is what we see going on Brian
0: Sam, thank you so much for your comments. you bet God bless great to hear from you he's right it's written large it's it's collectivism it's per, it's uh, playing to people's tribal instincts. And, and when we succumb to that, to that temptation to start grouping people, you know, based on what we perceive, well, you have this color skin, so you must be this, or you believe that, so you must be that. What we're doing is we're substituting labels for actual observation. And I can't remember who it was who, who said, look, there, there are really only two classifications of human beings. Those who are decent, those who are indecent. And that's a matter of their behavior at the individual level. Not so much a matter of which group they may happen to belong to. But then again, I'm not that anxious to go grouping people either. And frankly, I don't know that many people who are. But boy, we're we're sure being pushed in that direction. Well, you have to. You have to. That's your your white privilege talking there, Brian. Is it? Well, maybe I'm not accepting any new guilt today. If If I'm privileged, I might as well make that part of it as well. Let's go back here for a moment to uh, Justin Murray's article about more laws mean more police brutality. Now, I know there are people who kind of get a little bit uh, hot under the collar at the prospect of, well, any maximum penalty for any law, you know, the maximum penalty for any failure to comply with a given law comes down to the execution of the perpetrator. And he says, I know it sounds like hyperbole, but here's why this is the case and how law enforcement must resort to this. And he uses for the example here, counterfeit money. The sentencing guidelines for counterfeiting money are a 16-month minimum and in some states a fine with a maximum prison sentence of 20 years. However, what if the accused refuses to show up in court? Well, then the court could find the perpetrator guilty in absentia and apply the sentence and fine. Now, should the person refuse to part with their resources or to report to prison, the court would then order an enforcement agent to collect the accused. Now, this is also what, should, what could happen should the accused uh, uh, refuse to show up for court itself. Now, should the accused resist this arrest? This is where grievous bodily harm, up to and including death, can occur. And if you think that's hyperbole, then let me just drop a name on you. George Floyd. You've heard of him, I take it. Okay, it was a $20 allegedly counterfeit bill and refusal to be taken into law enforcement custody that set all of that sorry mess into motion. The reason state agents resort to killing an accused for refusal to comply is that despite the verbal claims to the contrary by the state itself, there is no other way to ensure compliance with laws. So if the general public knows that the worst the state will ever do is send easily ignored bills in the mail for fines, then laws would never be followed and the state would collapse. But because the state is an institution of violence... All laws must be backed with violence. Now, the state's very careful to try to conceal this reality, but the ultimate refusal of compliance is always summary execution. If you keep resisting and keep resisting, eventually they will kill you until you stop resisting. So police brutality, in a sense, is just a matter of numbers. As the number of interactions with an enforcement agent increase, the number of instances of violent interactions will also increase. And Justin Murray says if the odds of death from a single interaction remain the same or even decline, this can be overwhelmed if the legal system expects greater instances of interaction with the general public through the application of more laws. And you can see this through the increasing number of deaths by legal intervention within the baseline white ethnicity in the U.S. in the aftermath of the war on drugs, particularly after the 1984 Sentencing Reform Act. According to a Harvard study, the rate of killings via legal intervention of whites in 1985, the year after the U.S. government got tough on crime, stood at 0.28 per 100,000. By 2005, it was up to 0.37 per 100,000. That's a 32% increase.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
0: Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, the articles and the, the different essays that I mention, I always put together a page of copious show notes. You can find them at the thebrianhydeshow.com. Just, to, you don't know, locate it by date. But I have links to them. I, I want you to check them out for yourself. And, and if necessary, if you find that there's something useful there, feel free to share them with the people around you. In fact, while you're at it, you might even suggest, hey, maybe give a listen once in a while to this program. You know, my hope is that they're going to find something useful. Let's go back to the phone, 801-331-8113. Dean, thank you for your patience. Welcome to the show.
4: Uh, yeah, this uh, rule of law and, and trials and incentive. I've been through this for 25 years with these guys. And what they do is once you start learning the law... Um, They'll get in the corner and they'll dismiss the charges. Well, so then they'll bring up the charges later and throw out a warrant for your arrest, of course, for the bail. And now you're sitting in jail um, for the same charges, cha- changing case numbers and everything. and, and it starts over again, um, which causes confusion. Uh, and then you know if you're lucky, they'll figure this out a few years later or probably not and then you'll be rearrested and rearrested. And so this rule of law and the way, the way they're doing this, especially when you learn how the, all these uh, attorney, public defenders, and everything that, that's in the judicial system is against you. They need that conviction, and it ain't going to go away. And as far as, like, you know, I spent six or ten months in jail on a trespass ticket, trying to force it to a jury trial. And it's still going on. This this was in 2018, and they canceled the the uh, ch- uh, charges because they 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 can't win the case. This is because uh, of a mad mayor and a mad chief of police, and uh, you know they they don't like me. But what I'm getting at is they twist this all around until they break you down and loot and you. They ruin your reputation, all your friends, everybody that supported you, and break you down until they win. And I don't know how else to say it, but but we're being duped. And as far as bringing the federal people in, you know, there's no way to arrest them. There's nowhere to hold them. And uh, they'd have to be, you know, charging with state laws and local laws, and it's going to cause a mess.
0: Dean, it sounds like you know a lot about this system and maybe you can comment to this. Um, I I have heard a former uh, he was formerly a prosecutor and then he, he became a defense attorney. In fact, he was an FBI agent at one time, a guy by the name of Dale Carson. And he says, once you are in the system, even if it's just an arrest, you don't even have to be convicted. But once you are in the system, effectively, you have been admitted to an electronic plantation from which there is no escape. And the system finds it in its interest to keep you a part of that system as long as possible.
4: Uh, Definitely, because, you know, if you you expose it, it just shuts down our whole system. And, in fact, when you're in a system like over in Nevada, and once you start speaking out, they do the diesel therapy deal, which I I learned what that was about. And I, I went to 13 different prisons in less than three years.
0: Diesel therapy. Does that refer to shipping you around from place to place yeah. to place?
4: To, to, to keep you out of the jurisdiction of the courts. When I filed uh, 30-something lawsuits in the, in the in the Southern District of Nevada, U.S. District, uh, hmm. all of a sudden they uh, I was met with with a metal examinationer uh, inside the prison system magically and shipped up to Carson City where they had an in-house metal examination and a I refused to participate in that, so they took all my paperwork and everything away. Wow. For about 60 days, and then they, they shoved me down back to uh, Southern Desert and put me in a what they call the aftercare mental facility with a, a bunch of guys that, you know, basically got mental problems. But this is to keep you shut up. Giving you an idea, you shut up, or, you know, you're going to... Find yourself uh, magically suicide. Wow! Because they will, you know. There's a outfit called the 211 Gang, and you know they're uh, they do hits on judges and all this stuff. In fact, you know, looking at this last hit, that might be something to do with those.
0: The one, the and one in New Jersey.
4: Do, yeah. Okay. But they'll do hit, hits inside the too.
0: Okay. Dean, I'm going to stop you here because I want to get back to the article. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your experience with us. I'm sorry that this is something that you have had to go through. But, uh, you know, for folks who want to hear, you know, there there are voices of warning out there that are saying, beware, you know, as, as idealized as we want to believe it is. They're also, uh, you know, over legislating creates ample opportunity for abuse. This article by Justin Murray Um, Further points to where more law means more violence, and you'll see this in, in very strong statist regimes. Enforcement killings in regimes like Venezuela are significantly worse. And you look at societies like Maoist China or the Soviet Union, large scale executions were used to ensure that people towed the line. The most aggressive or the more aggressive the attempt at transforming society through legal imposition, he says, the more aggressive the killing will be. And that's the thing that people don't seem to make the connection for genocide, like legit genocide that kills when I say legit, I mean the real thing, authentic genocide that kills people by the tens of thousands or or even by the millions almost always is done by law. It's all official and proper, and that's, you know, why we've got the paperwork to show you. That's why when people tell me, well, I'm really nervous about, you know, this fringe group or that fringe group, I'm like, yeah, when they start stacking up bodies like government has done historically, that's the time to be nervous. But nobody kills with the same degree of efficiency as governments that don't recognize limits to their power. Justin Murray says, here's where the cognitive dissonance with the defund the police movements comes into play people who support eliminating police violence also regularly support the passage of new mandates or redistribution schemes or regulatory impositions. But he says without police, how do they think all these new laws and rules will be enforced? If taxation were a voluntary affair, few individuals would turn a substantial portion of their annual earnings over to the state for redistribution. If gun control were just a suggestion Few people would make any effort to submit to the FFL sales regulations. By advocating for more laws, rules and taxes, people are effectively advocating for an increase in police violence. And he says abolishing the entity called police won't solve the issue since the state will inevitably have to form a new entity that does all the same things and has all the same powers. So, outlets like Vox can advocate for the creation of mobile response units and community mediators all they want. These entities are, from the viewpoint of the state, toothless, without any means to initiate violence to ensure compliance with rules. Community mediators will either find themselves armed or calling on some newly created entity that looks and acts a lot like current police, but is called something different to deal with a belligerent individual who refuses to follow the mandate. As, as anyone with a glove box filled with unpaid parking tickets can tell you, it's easy to ignore a piece of paper with a fine on it. The state is going to inevitably need an armed, violent agency to handle noncompliant individuals. Does that strike you as a hard fact? I mean, does that strike you as something like, wait, I don't want to believe that. You'd be surprised the number of people that are very resistant to it. And I'm not talking about, you know, ideologues or people who are, you know, mindless sheep. I want the government to protect me in everything. I know a lot of really good principled conservatives who nonetheless have that curious blind spot. Justin Murray says the only way to end police brutality, or at least to ensure an end to it, is to not concoct new entities with different names or worse, focusing on the ethnic element of it all as all that does is try to argue that police violence is fine as long as it's dished out equally along ethnic lines he says the only way to truly abolish police brutality is to abolish the state now some of you are oh anarchy but he says without a state there is no state law without state law there isn't a need for enforcement by an entity that operates with the language of violence without violent enforcement there isn't anyone getting killed for non-compliance Private structures have little incentive to kill non-compliant actors, and they're able to create stronger enforcement structures than state actors can. So it's not like there's no order here. Do you understand? He's just saying things that can be handled through persuasion rather than coercion. Let those things go to the private sector. Limit the state. Actually, he may take it a little bit further, but as nice as it would would be to believe the police can exist solely as a protection service, that's not the case. There's a reason they're called law enforcement and not protective services. And the Supreme Court's already definitively ruled that the police have no obligation to protect anyone. You can't sue them for not being there in your moment of need. Their only priority is enforcing laws, and as those laws expand, the chances we'll find ourselves interacting unfavorably with an enforcer will likewise increase.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. I have got a lot to cover in this last segment, but I'm going to spend some time talking about why we should have serious trust issues over the COVID-19 data. Now, I'm not saying that you should reject everything that every person is saying about it, that would seem to warn that it's a dangerous thing, but I'm saying, You should have a very healthy sense of skepticism because there's been some monkey business going on here. John Miltimore writing for the Foundation for Economic Education has been a wonderful resource and I highly recommend his articles. He has been really on top of this from the very beginning. And one of the people whom he, among others, uh, on the uh, paying attention, doing your research kind of thing, rather than simply waiting for, you know, Dr. Fauci to tell us what, what to think. Is this what we're supposed to believe? Okay. No, the ones who are actually doing their homework and, and reasoning this stuff out have uh, pointed to John Ioannidis. Let me see if I've got the Ioannidis. Sorry, John, your name is <laughs> It's just enough that it takes a couple tries to get it right. Dr. John Ioannidis warned COVID-19 could be a -a once-in-a-century data fiasco. And he was right. The data is a problem that just about everyone seems to agree on. And look, I think the the gist of what what he's saying here, as you'll hear in John's article, is not that COVID-19 isn't a dangerous virus. It may not be the most dangerous virus in a century, but it is certainly The most divisive. Most of that has to do with how the data is being interpreted or the solutions or the the reactions to that data are being implemented as well. And he starts by mentioning how a week ago, a Florida health official told a local news station that a young man who was listed as a COVID-19 victim had no underlying conditions. And that answer surprised reporters who probed for additional information. At that point, Dr. Raul Pinos clarified he died in a motorcycle accident. You could actually argue that it could have been the COVID-19 that caused him to crash. I don't know the conclusion of that one. Now, this anecdote is a ridiculous example of a real controversy that has inspired some colorful memes. What exactly should define a COVID-19 death? And while the question's important, John Miltimore says such incidents could just be the tip of the proverbial iceberg, regarding the unreliability of COVID-19 data. Back in May, a public radio station in Miami broke what soon became a national story. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, had been conflating antibody and viral testing, obscuring key metrics lawmakers use to determine if they should reopen their respective economies. That story was soon picked up by NPR, who spoke to an epidemiologist who condemned the practice, Dr. Jennifer Nuzo of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security told NPR, reporting both serology and viral tests under the same category is not appropriate, as these two types of tests are very different and tell us different things. The Atlantic soon followed with an article that explained the agency was painting an inaccurate picture of the state of the pandemic. The practice, the writer said, was making it difficult to tell if more people were actually sick or had merely acquired antibodies from fighting off the virus. Public health experts were not impressed. How could the CDC make that mistake? This is a mess, said Ashish Jha, the KT Lee Professor of Global Health at Harvard and director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. Yet in some ways, the mess was no surprise. Two weeks earlier, Dr. Deborah Lee Burks, the White House's Coronavirus Task Force Response Coordinator, reportedly ripped the agency in a meeting saying there is nothing from the CDC that I can trust. Now, Burks's concerns about the CDC's data did not alleviate concerns of data manipulation. The New York Times speculated that perhaps the agency had sought to bolster the testing numbers for political purposes. The Texas Observer wondered was the state inflating its COVID testing numbers by including antibody tests. Now, John Miltimore says, considering President Trump's sometimes comically inaccurate boasts about America's testing prowess, perhaps such questions were not unjustified. The many people who spoke to the Times said the answer was simpler, attributing the flawed system to, quote, confusion and fatigue in overworked state and local health departments. Now, if data manipulation had been the motive, the architects of the ploy were in for a rude awakening. Testing numbers did soar, but so did case numbers. The surge in late June and throughout July spawned new fears of a second wave and more lockdowns and more charges that America was botching the pandemic. Tensions between the White House and its own agency boiled over last week when the Trump administration stripped the CDC of its role in collecting data on COVID-19 hospitalizations. Now, it's hard to read the drama, incompetence and confusion, says John Miltimore, without thinking about Dr. John Ioannidis, the CF Renborg chair in disease prevention at Stanford university in a March 17 stat article, Ionidas warned the world was looking at what could turn out to be a once in a century evidence fiasco. In other words, he worried central planners were making sweeping and reflexive changes without sufficient data, locking people up without knowing the fatality risk of COVID-19 could have severe social and financial consequences that could be totally irrational Dr. Ioannidis warned. It's like the elephant, uh, like an elephant being attacked by a house cat. Frustrated and trying to avoid the cat, the elephant accidentally jumps off a cliff and dies. Now, in one sense, Ioannidis has already been proven right. The models on which the lockdowns were initiated have been proven already to have been astronomically wrong. But that was hardly the only, the only example. Every day it seems like there's another story about reporting flaws or mix-ups. Tuesday, it was a lab in Connecticut, where researchers said they discovered a flaw in a testing system for the virus. That flaw resulted in 90 people receiving false positives. Now, that may not sound like many, but researchers say that the test is used by labs across America. And just a few days earlier, it was announced that Texas had removed 3,484 cases from its positive COVID-19 case count because the San Antonio Health Department was reporting, quote, probable cases. In other words, none of the people that actually tested positive for COVID-19. Look, it's complicated. But when experts can't agree on their own numbers or even clearly answer if a man who died in a motorcycle accident while infected should be labeled as a COVID-19 death, maybe we should be asking some more questions. John Miltimore says in light of this, perhaps it's time for the experts to exercise some humility. And begin offering guidance to individuals instead of advocating collective blunt force. I agree completely. And you and I need to be willing to ask some questions, too. Now, this, of course, is going to run contrary to what uh, many would have us do, because if we start asking questions, well, then we might not obey some of these mandates like put on the mask. And I know that if you are a person who is reluctant to wear the mask, or at least if you're, you're skeptical of what we're being told, is this really necessary? Why is it so imperative that everybody be on board, everybody wear the mask, so that there's this appearance that we are all united on this, we all agree, there is no dissent. I can tell you it's very uncomfortable to dissent. It's uncomfortable to be the only person sitting in church not wearing a mask. Well, there is a new level of manipulation, and I thought you would want to know if, uh, let's say, for instance, you resist the pressure to wear a face mask, or maybe you don't really believe the social distancing thing is is all it's cracked up to be. Maybe you're just reluctant to do what you're told by those who purport to know better than you. Congratulations. A new study out of Poland says that you are likely a narcissist or psychopath. Well, it didn't take long to, uh, to do that, now did it? You must have some kind of a deep-seated mental condition if you do not do what we say. This is really interesting. I'm going to have the, I'll have a link to it. It's a Newsweek article, but two recent studies looked at the relationship between personality traits and the reactions to restrictions put in place to slow the spread of coronavirus, COVID-19. And the article says the researchers found that people possessing so-called dark triad traits, narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, were less likely to comply with restrictions or engage in preventative measures against the pandemic. However, researchers also emphasize the small role personality traits have in the overall response to pandemic reactions, like face mask mandates and social distancing requirements. This is nothing new, by the way. If you haven't heard of oppositional defiant disorder, ODD for short, that's a that is a diagnosis that is now in what is it the DSM-5? I don't know how many editions of the the DSM the 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 book on mental illnesses or mental conditions. Yeah, it's it's considered a mental illness. If you don't like to do what people in authority are telling you or if you question what people in authority are telling you. Well, it's probably cuz you're not quite right in the head. And now we're being told at least by these two studies that narcissists and psychopaths are more likely to refuse to wear masks so that explains so much doesn't it I mean no reasonable person who perceives that perhaps their cherished freedoms are under attack or that this might just be the precursor to even more invasive demands and mandates you know these people who are being pushed to the margins of society where they can't so much as shop for food or go out in public or get health care without submitting To the mask? Yeah, they're narcissists, they're psychopaths. What else could it be?
1: This is the Brian Hyde Show.